0: Let's uh, pray again, and I want to dovetail off of Steve's comments. Father, as we approach the throne of grace, we would like to ask you to help us this morning that we would be a, a group of people that would be attentive to the Word of God, and you would help us to hear and obey. Would you allow your Spirit to speak through us this morning, speak through your messenger in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, um, there's a verse in the Bible that goes like this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you remember that verse in the Psalms? And in fact, if you were to look up the goodness of God, you would find it mostly written about in the Psalms and a few times in the New Testament. But when I got my positive COVID test, that verse had certain doubts in my mind. You see, I had wanted to be home for Christmas when I was in Kenya, and uh, I, all the family was coming in. Michael was coming in as a surprise visit. And uh, I had missed many Christmases in my work years, and I didn't want to miss any more. And when you get uh, a positive COVID test, I actually, I think I had the illness, Omicron illness there, um, they immediately say you need two weeks Right? So that would have means I would have been back yesterday. But what they really need is a negative COVID test. And so I began to pray. And the, and I'm glad you weren't there for all those prayer meetings because, uh, there were wrestling matches, really. And I was wrestling with the statement that God said about himself that he is good. You see, when I first got to Nairobi and we met in the assembly there, very much like ours and uh they would say to the audience the speaker would say god is good all the time and the audience would answer all the time god is good it was in um, god's not dead movie remember that yeah and uh and they would do that and constantly the guy would get up god is good all the time and the audience would say all the time god is good and my first message, I preached there on that on that premise and gave them a message out of the life of Joseph. And now, a week later, I was in COVID prison. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, that'd be a good message for me to remember right about now. And I struggled and I wrestled and I wrestled and I struggled because I didn't want to miss any more Christmases. And then I began to think about our sister Shireen. She was in a prison too, still is. It's a prison of her physiology and health. And she, uh, she may not get released. And I began to think, I began to think quite seriously about how serious I was with God. There's a lot of time to think when you're in your own COVID prison, you know, four walls and a window, and there's only one thing to do, sleep or get up. <laughs> you can't leave the house. And, and I began to really think, and I began to wonder, well, God, how good are you? And so as I prayed, I, I was praying and asking the Lord, I said, Lord, now I'd like to ask you to get me home by Christmas. I'd like to ask you that. And I don't know how to, how to explain it, but I just felt like the Lord said, I'll have you home by Christmas. And then I kept getting these positive tests. And these are not easy things to do. You know, here you go down to Walgreens or something, or you go to Walmart, but there you have to drive an hour to the hospital, you know, the third world country. There's the traffic is, there is no traffic laws. It's just every man for himself. It takes an hour to get there. We waited one night two hours to get our COVID test. And after two hours, the next day we were all positive again. And we, that was like three times in a row. And I'm going, Lord, you know, if I, I don't, I'm not, I'm just going to miss Christmas. And I was so discouraged and I called Janet and she was, man, She just said, Well we'll just wait for Chris. We're just gonna wait. We're just gonna wait. And and so we won't do anything till you get home. We're just gonna wait. And she said, I want you to do the right thing. I said, okay. And so I I I waited and and um the next morning uh, we had a special arrangement with a, a guy that met us. It was almost like a, a black market thing. He met me at a place in the back seat of the car. He swabbed my nose and took the specimen into the lab. And By noon, which was very unusual because normally it takes 12 hours, I got a message that was negative that was on Christmas Eve. And I immediately got online. I booked a ticket and... um I walked into my house at Christmas morning, 11.30 a.m. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. But you know, I had to face the fact that that might not be His will. And what I realized was that I needed to die to myself in a way that I could be content and thankful and broken and humble, attentive. I needed to break in a way, I needed to present myself to the Lord in a way that was willing to lay down even that sacrifice, which when you compare it to Shireen's sacrifice or especially the sacrifice of the Savior, it is absolutely minuscule. But it takes the same path of the disciple. So this morning, I'd like to talk about that idea that God is good, his goodness. And I'm going to take a certain path today, and the path will be in Psalm 91. So as you turn there, I want to just prep this well. You see, when we talk about God's goodness, and then when we face trials, like the trial that, that was presented to me in Africa, or your trials here, whether it be with your own health, or your own family or your own or your own finances or your own your own health itself where you have limitations of your body sometimes it's very hard to see the goodness of god and the only way you can see it is by trusting in his word and what i'm here to tell you is that i trusted in his word because this psalm was the psalm the lord used in my heart while i was in africa to trust in his goodness now the goodness of God is a very broad topic. We can talk about goodness in terms of his uh just his old-fashioned benevolence, you know that word that means that he's just, we say it today, he's just a good guy. What do we mean by that? Well, I think of Ken Key now. He's just a good guy. He's just—he's kind. He's thoughtful. He does things uh, unexpectedly that are so uh, meaningful to another life. I mean, that's God, right? That's how God is. He would be that kind of person. Can you imagine being on a camping trip with the Lord Jesus, which the disciples were on all the time? He would be the guy that got up early and made the coffee. He would have got here like Noah, who shoveled the, the sidewalks for us this morning. He would have been the, the person who collected the water so that when you got up, it would already be heated and warm so you could wash your face. That would be the Lord. He's just good. He just does things that are kind, that are uh, thoughtful, sentimental, uh means a lot to you because he knows you well. That's God's goodness. He's a comforting person, isn't he? That's what it says in, in First, our Second Corinthians, chapter one, verse three, that He is the God of all comfort. That's a good thing. Where you're struggling, you're down in your emotional uh, res, um, ditch, and and He comes along and He puts His arm around you and hugs you and holds you tight and whispers in your ear or just empathizes with the emotion of the moment, with this physicality of the situation. You see, that's good. You think of all those people that you would qualify, you would uh, label with that title. Well, you, you think of the Lord that way, except in an exponential fashion. That's the Lord. Now, we don't think that way about God very often, do we? He's just plain good. I was doing some research on this topic. Uh, uh, I came across an old, an old work. I I can't pronounce his name. Shunoff, I think, was his name. It's two volume set and the the part on goodness was a hundred (laughs) pages. But I can't read all that. (laughs) Not before Sunday, you know. But that, that man was thinking about the goodness of God. Well, I experienced the goodness of God. And I'd like to share that with you in Psalm 91. Now I'm going to read the psalm, and we're going to just analyze it in three movements or three sections, but we'll have to mention two perspectives. So let me read this psalm in its entirety. I will mark off each section as we go, and then I'll go back and, and remind you of the two perspectives that will be presented in the psalm. So let's read it. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. That's the first movement, verses 1 and 2. The second movement will be from verses 3 through 13. Surely he, it's a pronoun change, surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. You shall not be afraid of terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by the day, nor, or by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and serpent, you shall trample underfoot. That's the second movement. Now look at the last movement. The pronoun changes occur again. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. Notice the I wills. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The goodness of God as presented in Psalm 91 has three movements verses 1 through 2, 3 through 13, and then 14 through 16. When you read the psalm, there are two perspectives to keep in mind. One of them is messianic, meaning simply this, that it would be written about the Lord Jesus as if he was speaking or being spoken to. So, for example, in the first movement of verses 1 and 2, it would be as if the Lord Jesus is saying that. In verses 3 through 13, it could be as if the Spirit of God was saying that, and then verses 14 through 16, as if the Father was speaking. In other words, the Psalm incorporates all portions of the Trinity, but specifically referring to the Lord Jesus in His earthly suffering, in His time of earthly suffering, thus messianic, speaking of the Anointed One to come. And yet, there is another very, very, very important perspective, which I'll refer to in this message, and that's your perspective. If you were to read Bill McDonald's commentary on this psalm, he writes a testimony, a personal testimony, of how when he was ill as a young boy, he was near death. And a brother was praying for him and came across the psalm and walked over to his mother's house that night, Who had hidden her, uh, closed the door so she would not hear the dying gasps of Bill McDonald. And he said very boldly, I think he will live. Here's the word of God that he gave me for you. And brother, uh, and he said the Lord will use him in a unique way. And brother Bill McDonald as a boy recovered and went on to serve the bride of Christ in the ways that we've benefited. So it's a very personal Psalm, both for Mr. McDonald and for me. Because when I was there in that situation, this is the Psalm the Spirit of God brought to me. Now I'd like to do that by mentioning the messianic portion and the personal portion as we march through each movement. The first movement says the following. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And you can see as if the Lord was saying this. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. Now that's true of the Lord Jesus. When he walked upon the earth, you will find, especially in John chapter 13 through 17, a constant referral to his dependency upon the Father his dependency upon his father's love, how he is wrapped in the father's love and the father's love wraps him completely. You find this oneness. He uses the word oneness over and over. The father and I are one. Jesus even said, I don't speak these things on my own. They're my father's words. And so there's there's direct evidence that the Lord Jesus himself could have easily spoken verse two. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And that I think is, a splendid observation of the messianic element of the psalm. But may I suggest that since we are in Christ and since we are unioned with him, that the words that he utters could easily become our words, if you will. And thus you might read it as follows, as if you were the object of this discussion. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, as you, shall abide under the shadow of the mighty, as you now, that's a very po- clever poetic expression. He's saying there is a structure. Now, what is the structure in the Old Testament where the Most High would dwell? The temple, the temple. Now, the temple was a very large structure in terms of of its uniqueness. It was uh, ornate and it jettisoned out of the top of the one of the summits of Mount Moriah. And and as you walked up to that. Area there would be a village of lower um, of lower elevation homes, and then all of a sudden, this gigantic, almost almost like a, a Eiffel Tower like appearance, right out of the horizon, and and in, in, and it was the only it was the tallest structure on that summit. Remember, it was built on a threshing floor, which means it was a flat area, so that when you approached it at certain times of the day. The heat of the day, the heat of the sun, the radiant energy would be blocked by the structure itself so that you could stay cool in the shadows of that structure. This is what he's saying. He's imaging that moment. If you're in the, if you're in the presence of God, His presence alone is enough to shield you from the, from the heat of the hour, from, from the, 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 the discomfort of the moment. You get to hide in that shadow. In 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 um, Israel, when we go there, sometimes the days would get up to a hundred degrees. What is that? Thirty eight Celsius, you know. And uh, we're out there in in the desert, and it's just beating on you, you know. And so whenever I'm I'm talking to the group, I I, I run for the trees. And we all get under, and you just literally see people, we're out in the sun, they're like this, you know, and as soon as we move over 10 feet, they just are so calm and relaxed and sleeping almost, you know. You see, this is what it would be like. This is what he's saying. You dwell where he dwells, you get the benefit of his protective shadow. Are you in need of that today? Because that's, That's what we need, isn't it? You see, when we look at all that the Lord has allowed to transact in the world today, both globally and personally, the shadow of the Almighty is a good place to be. Look at the next verse. It's 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 like the Lord said, you might say this. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge. You know, the problem with many of us today is that we are trying to find refuge in all the wrong places. Sometimes we're finding refuge from the Internet and we do our little Google. You know, I did the Google. What does that mean? That I, I looked around to find if somebody else has gone through what I've gone through so that they can identify and empathize with my crazy emotions. And you know what? That's not the word of God. There is no book of the Bible called the Google. That's man's opinion. You need the Lord. You need to dwell in the presence of the Lord with the words of the Lord freshly upon the fingertips of your soul. That's how it has to happen. And so it says, uh, he is my refuge. That is a very important statement. My fortress. What does that mean? Not only is he the place where you find shelter, but he's the place where you find an impenetrable wall so that the enemy cannot touch you. It's, it's. There's a slight variation in him refuge is safety and general fortress is protective element. And he's saying, my God in whom I will trust. That is a decision of soul. And when I was in that situation, I had to decide, I will trust you and must we all. I've been on the phone probably even in, in Africa with Shireen's mom probably 10 times. Now they, they are in a position where they have to say, I will trust you. Their little baby girl is one breath away from being in heaven. That is really hard. And yet, the psalmist would tell us, the goodness of God would tell us, you can trust me. You see that's the only way faith works. Faith does not have to have every single answer. And if you think faith is like that, then you are you you are mistaken about the way faith works. Faith the way God does things is he gives you enough evidence to show you that he is trustworthy and that it is true. The Lord Jesus did that with all the miracles. But But at some point, it takes a decision of will that you will cast yourself on this God who's proven himself trustworthy and rest there. And when I came to that point in that little place in Nairobi where the rooster got up at 3 a.m. every morning, then I had peace. Now let's look at the second movement and uh, we'll see if we can do some justice to it. Now, in this movement, from the messianic perspective, it can be as if the Spirit of God is saying these things to the Lord Jesus. But again, because we're in Christ, because we have the, we are the inheritors of everything that comes to Christ, in that sense, we very much can identify this identify personally with this so let's read it with both perspectives in mind surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler what's a fowler it's the bird catcher it's the guy that spreads out the net to catch the birds to 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 kill them and it's it's a it's sort of a a, a clever um uh, hidden thing insidious you can't see it coming and so you've got this snare there that is is that that is meant to be hidden so that you walk into it unawares. So you're blindsided. This is what he's saying. He shall deliver you from that device. It doesn't say that you're going to be protected from uh, even walking through past the snare, but you the snare won't catch you. So you're going to, you're going to see the danger, but it won't actually be dangerous for you. Look at what it says next. From the perilous pestilence. Now, the imagery that's going to be presented has a very Exodus-like imagery. You know, the, the plagues. And so, uh, there are several plagues in, in the book of Exodus, chapter nine specifically, with the pestilence that was upon the cattle, that it didn't touch the Um, uh, Hebrew cows, but only the Egyptian livestock. Now, Now, remember, the Israelites were charged to take care of their own livestock, but also the Egyptian livestock. So that means that they probably had a fence just between the two to keep them separate. Which also means that when the pestilence came through, the herder, the sh- the, the rancher, or the Israelite rancher, would come out, check on his livestock, his herd, and he would see, uh, he would hear all of his cows mooing or all his sheep uh, uh, doing their thing. But across the little boundary, he would see dead carcasses on the ground. You see, that would be that vivid. For that individual. And I wonder, based on the usage of the terminology here that reflect the Exodus event, if, if this was what was in mind, that that was so stark in their realization. Did you know darkness? Now, that's another plague that came, another judgment. Darkness did not affect the children of Israel, but all the Egyptians had no light. Now, in Africa there, we had these things called blackouts, and it would be... Totally black. They don't have really street lights there. Alright? And so when you have a blackout in your little flat, <laughs> it's like this, you know. And, uh, and it is only, you go, all you can do is go to bed. That's it. You know, so you slept great if you could go to sleep. And so, so the blackness was pretty, pretty dramatic and yet, The Egyptian could look across the way and see light over there and the distinction would be made. Now think of that imagery of the distinction and now read this paragraph with me. He deliver you from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. Very poetic way to say as an eagle or as a hen would gather their chicks underneath their wing where the wing attaches to their torso. That's the safest place to be, the strongest place to be. That's where you will be. And then he says, your truth, his truth shall be your shield and buckler. The shield is the big heavy thing used to put up a barrier. The buckler was the smaller thing used on the forearm that would be very mobile and agile and fight and sometimes protect even the blind side and the the Point being is whether you need a large protection or a hand-to-hand combat protection. This God of yours is the one who will provide that through His truth. Now look at the the terminology of the of the um, of the plagues uh, that come into play. Verse five: You shall not be afraid of terror by night. Notice the. The uh, reference to the time of day. You know, there's nothing more frightening than to have noises in the night, right? Never happened to your house? Yeah, I'm sure. And I know how it goes, Ben. Grace says, did you hear that? Yeah, I didn't hear anything. Meaning, I don't want to get up and check it out. You, you actually did hear it. You just, you know, don't want to. I know, I've done the same thing. I don't hear anything. And then, of course, now it happens again, and you can't deny that you didn't hear it because it was so loud. So you get up and you know, I sleep with a baseball bat by my bed because that's, you know, I don't own any guns. And so I, I go out with my bat. I look like a little stick. I look like a kid, you know. And so we go out and check it out. You know, there's nothing more frightening than that. One night we were in bed and we were just about to sleep and we heard BAM! It was a huge pop, a big noise against the house and we, so we both get up. Creep over to the back door. You've been in our house. And we think whatever it was was on the back and we're just expecting like some guy with no head or something, you know. And we flip the little wood blinds and there's this owl. And he, he looks like, we, we, we look what happened. He ran into our window. You see, you, you, you can actually see through the window from the back of the house to the front of the house, you know. And he, and I guess he would fly there. Before we finished the house, but once we finished the house, he went BAM! And he, and you know, he's sitting on the ground, and he's a big old bird, and he's kinda like the heads going in all ways, not because he's trying to figure out what, where he was, he was just, he was just goofy. Whoa, whoa, how come there's three of you, you know? And I, we started laughing, because we were petrified that there was gonna be some scene from The Headless Horseman or something, you know. Terror by night. Nothing more frightening than that, is there? All right, read on. Nor of the arrow that flies by the day. Now, uh, imagery of arrow, sure, you can, you can make some analogies there, but notice the time element. Whether you're sleeping or you're awake, whether the attack comes at the night hour or the daytime, I'm going to protect you. Notice the next one. Um, the pestilence that walks in darkness. That's, again, imagery back to the time of the plagues where that that disease, that pestilence, seemed to have affected them in the night hours. And look at the next one. The destruction that lays waste at noonday. Now this is more of a reference to the broad element where that which is going to come upon you is not disguising itself. It's just a full-on frontal attack. Now listen. Many of us are going through frontal attacks right now. It can be the workplace. It can be the home front. It can be the health front. It can be the financial front. It can be all kinds of different scenarios. But the Word of God is saying to you that when you make the Lord your refuge, I choose to trust in Him. Whether the attack is from your blind side, your front side, or all over the sides, I'm going to protect you. I am your shield and buckler. You see, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. This is His goodness. This is how one way that His goodness is being expressed. Now look at what it says next. Ten thousand will fall at your a thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand. But it shall not come near you. <laughs> do you, do you remember the. The parting of the Red Sea. And if we could for a minute, we'll pretend this room is the Red Sea and this is where the dry ground in the middle. And you recall the incident. Charlton Heston, of course, portrayed it for us. And, and how, how the, the Israelites, two million plus, would walk on that, which took quite a while, I might add. And they'd walk on that on dry ground. And as they were getting out, stepping off, uh, the riverbed or the seabed onto the shoreline, they could see the, the dust behind them of the entire 600 chariot Egyptian mobile tank force coming after them. And I tell you, they were coming after them with a vengeance. And that looked incredibly frightening. And you could see, if you could see that far, the, the faces of the soldiers and the, and the, the anger and the, the just pure uh, violence in their eyes and, and their uh, guns, their swords, their arrows drawn. And you'd be frightened, and all of a sudden, as Moses puts his arms up and brings them down, we, see, we hear and see the water just crash in and envelop and totally collapse the 600-chariot Egyptian army, the best-known army at that time. Isn't that amazing? You see, although you can see the danger, and it's literally you could reach out and touch it, it won't touch you. You feel like that army's on you right now. All the pressures, all the heartaches, all the difficulties. The Word of God is telling you that the refuge and fortress-like quality of who He is, the shadow of His protection won't let any of that put even so much as a scratch upon you. Maybe you're in a situation where everyone's slandering you. Everyone's thinking ill about you. Everyone's got these feelings. Everyone's got these opinions. The Lord's saying, I I protect you from that. You see, this is the goodness of God. This is how good God gets, isn't it? And we go around so many hours of our existence and we don't even think that this is how God operates. But he says to us very plainly, I not only think this way, I do this way. This is how I do life. And I want you to know that that's my way of doing life is exactly how I will do life for you. Oh, we need that, don't we? Oh, we need that. Saints, we need that. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good let' read on let's let's just read on with it, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. this is. This is nothing special of ourselves. We have trusted. It's a a little bit of a chiasmatic structure, as my brother Ben loves to point out, the word trust in verse 2, the idea of trust in verse 9. And he's saying, listen, you're dwellingly returning back to verse 1. You have made me your stay. This is what God is saying. And because you have made me your stay, I'm going to show up and make sure I stay for you. You know, there's nothing more precious to me than when my little Gracie will come up to me and say, and, and say, uh, will you hold my blanket? She used to do this. And she, and I'd say, I'll, I'll protect it. And she'd turn back and she'd look at me. I know. And then she'd walk away. Well, that blanket, and as you know, in any child's life is like gold bullion. Right? And if she gives you the gold bullion to handle, (laughs) last thing I'm going to do, I'm going to die taking care of that blanket, okay? You see, that kind of absolute confidence in the other person is what God is loving from his children. And so it's like he's saying, I'm showing up for this. I'm going to be there. And so he says, you've made me the Lord who is, the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, and therefore no evil shall fall you. Now the t- context seems to indicate that all that he's been talking about is the evil of the wicked, those who are specifically targeting, if you will, God himself. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague, see that? Plague going back to the Egyptian situation, come near your dwelling, for he shall give angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. Now, Satan used this in the book of Matthew to sort of uh, manipulate in the, tip, in the temptations of the Lord Jesus, who was trying to manipulate the Son of God to basically be able to fall in line with Satan's will. Now, the problem is Satan didn't finish the scripture because in the next verse, it talks about how the lion and the cobra are, under, are, are trampled by one's foot. And from a symbolic way, if he would only finish the passage, which he didn't, then he would realize that he would have been part of that uh, uh, serpent category trampled underfoot. And that's typical of Satan, only gives you part of the word of God, so you'll go off half-cocked and do something crazy that wasn't in the will of God anyway. So that's why we have to make sure we read the whole passage. And so he says, listen, he will give his charge over you. Now, what you're going to notice here is that God has people. Okay, God has helpers. God has angels. Now, do you remember when we read in Revelation, it says that he had tens, 10,000 times 10,000, you know, 100 million angels. Do you remember that? It's in Revelation 5. They're all going to be worshiping. Okay, so that's quite a big army. Like, was it 100 million, I think? 100 million. So he's going to say, I'm going to give, I I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I I just have a a small army today. It's just 100 million, and I'm I'm basically instructing them to protect you. Okay, have a nice day. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if all the military forces were dispatched to guard your house? (laughs) Who's going to get through? No one. And that's what he's saying to you. Not only will they be that wall of protection that God who has under his authority, these angelic hosts, to protect you, he will specifically appoint them to intervene for you so that if you fall, which is the scary part for us, your foot won't get injured. Right? One time uh, I was with a, a person and they fell in the pool. You know. And I thought, oh no, they hit their head, there's gonna be blood. Person comes out of the pool and I said, Are you hurt? Not physically, you know. Just embarrassed. You see that's how it would be. You you may actually go through the process of a fall. That's what it says there, uh shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. But yet you you won't sustain injury. This happened, actually, in a very miraculous way at a Bible camp where one of our staffers misstepped and was run over by the tractor. I don't know if you know that, but that's kind of a lot of weight. And uh, generally speaking, when you have a crush injury to the body, things inside the body rupture, like the spleen, no injury at all. I know, that was nothing short of a miracle. You see, this is the kind of vividness I think the author is getting us to see in a poetic fashion. And so you're going through those moments, even physically, emotionally, spiritually, and the angelic hosts are discharged, are appointed, are given as your personal, if you will, bodyguards. Now this is God at his finest you see, this is the goodness of God shining through again. Now, let's finish the passage. It talks about the, the the lion and the cobra, the external forces of the wicked coming against you. He says basically in verse 13, they're going to be under your foot. What does it mean poetically to be under your foot? That means you're victorious over them. And I love that in the New Testament because that's what it said about the Lord Jesus in Colossians. And he defeated the enemy and having paraded them as defeated foes in glory. Can you imagine that parade in heaven? The trumpets, the, 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 the music, the angelic host, the parade walking down the corridor of heaven to the throne room and Satan himself in shackles as one who was defeated by the victorious resurrection of our great king. That's what it is. Now, the last paragraph I want to focus on before we close today, and as I mentioned to you, it has an element in which the Father is speaking. And and in the messianic perspective, the Father is making these statements to the Son. Us being in the Son, we receive the same statements. Now, do you remember that uh, uh, Satan used uh, the term, I will, five times in Isaiah to basically tout his tremendous assent to authority and grandeur to be like God? Now, there are times in the Bible where God takes the same two words, I will, and he uses them to establish the new covenant. For example, in Hebrews, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. And in this psalm he uses the I will I think it's 6 times and he gives you significant promises that he per, that he will personally take on himself. Not only does he dispatch the angels, but he then takes personal responsibility for your health and safety as he did for the Lord Jesus. Now read it with me. Because he has set his because he has set his love upon me. That's the father saying that to the son. Therefore I will deliver him. Now look at this. I will in verse 14. I, uh, and the verb is deliver. For, uh, 14 part B. I will set him on high. So I will rescue you and I'll put you up in a, in a, in the exalted place because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer. That's the third I will with an, a verb attached to it. Meaning I will hear your prayer. The fourth one. I will be with him in trouble. I will be with you. That's called empathy. That's called presence. That's called where you are. He is. So where are you? you In a hospital bed on a ventilator with ECMO? Are you lost in a family moment? Are you alone in Africa? Are you just alone? I will be with you. Be with him in trouble. And the fifth one I will deliver him. Deliver him. Not just be with you. I will get you out of this place. Peter's asleep in the prison and the angel shines a light on him, uses the light like it's a club. Tap, tap, tap. Time to get up. Believe it or not, the rooster is crowed. It's time to go. Peter gets up, walks out the gates and they open on their own to the very street. Do you know how many gates that was? That was at least Five gates. Five gates. And they weren't tied together by, like, shoestring. They were locked. You see, this is what he says. I will deliver you. I will honor him. That's uh, obviously a clear reference to the Lord Jesus. Number six, with long life I will satisfy him and will show him my salvation oh saints the savior has all received all of this from the father he raised him from the dead he seated him in the heavenly places the lord god reigns with all of his authority and power and dominion and he us being in him we inherit all that was given to him The goodness of God does not stop with His Son. The goodness of God extends through His Son to your life and mine through Psalm 91. Listen, is He your refuge? Is He your shadow? Is He your hiding place? For in that zone, in that moment of his shadow and his hiding place, he gives you certain promises and he describes how all the turmoil and all the chaos that is exploding around you will never touch a hair of your head. So it looks kind of grim right now, doesn't it? Loss of family. It looks painful. But you see, our God is good. And all the time, He does good. And He's expressing that goodness through this psalm in such a way that He promises and guarantees your safety. Now, I had no idea what version of safety that was going to pan out to be back in Africa. I had no idea, but I actually went to bed and slept well, for I just rested in his decision-making. And that's trusting in the Lord. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Just like I said to Gracie, I'll take care of your blanket. I know, Daddy. Let me close with one sort of family illustration. One year, I I took Gracie to the Walmart to get her a piece of candy. She was 2 foot 6 inches. Do you ever take a child 2 foot 6 inches to the candy row at Walmart? It's 50 foot long and 8 foot tall. To her, it looks like a mountain with all kinds of choices, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of choices. I'll never forget, I took her over there. She looked down the long corridor. Her eyes followed the whole rack, top to bottom, all the way back to where we were standing. And she went... And she looked at me. You pick for me, Daddy. I said, oh, sweetheart, I I want you to pick whatever you want. I trust your choices better than mine, Daddy. I'm pretty sure that's what it means to make Him your refuge. Father, this morning we've come maybe in a very poor way just to describe Your goodness. Everything in that psalm just reeks and is smothered in Your goodness. There are many souls here, Father, that Need to know your goodness. We think of Shireen. We think of some of our family situations. And we need that, Lord. So would you take your goodness through your word and totally cover our, our, our aching hearts with your tender arms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.